Well, Merry Christmas once again, and uh, so good to be here with you this morning. You know, I've been thinking a lot over the coming and anticipation of Christmas, and you know, one thing that just keeps coming um, to my heart and mind is the fact that when you have something like Christmas or Easter that comes every year, you know, the, the awe and the wonder can, can kind of lose their significance in our hearts, unless, of course, we take time to reflect, right? And, you know, that, that to me is kind of two ways you can go with Christmas, right? One way is, oh, it's the season, I've got to get through it, and I've got to make sure I get all the presents under the tree and all the trimmings and make everything just how it ought to be, or you can really take this time to allow Christmas to be this kind of season that builds each year. It just gets better and better. You marvel, you awe over the reality that God became flesh and dwelt among us. So I want to offer a prayer for us that we would just take time this Christmas season to truly absorb the magnitude of Christmas. Shall we pray? Lord, Uh, We do thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus, into the world. It's amazing. It's beyond expectation, Lord. The reality that that you loved us so much, as John 3.16 says, a very familiar verse, that you sent your only son, your special one-of-a-kind son, to dwell among us. I pray that this Christmas season, Lord, as we approach the season, as we're getting prepared, as, as we're dealing with all of the, the logistics of Christmas, that we would just pause and take it all in and remember that, that you sent your Son. I also just want to pray a special prayer over our church family, Lord. I know that this time of year that, that families are getting together that parents are reconnecting with children maybe who live far away and grandchildren. And, and I, I just pray, Lord, that this would just be such a special time as the families come together. Thank you, Lord, for family. Thank you for that gift, that blessing. And I thank you, Lord, that we get to be together here and now to celebrate and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are going to be covering our third miraculous birth this morning. This is the birth of John the Baptist, and really what we'll be dealing with is the Annunciation of John the Baptist. Now, I have to tell you, as I was reflecting on the coming of John the Baptist, I I came to realize that, you know, we get so excited about the next birth that sometimes we gloss over this birth. Now, I get it. I mean, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the long-awaited one. John's the forerunner. John even said that I must become less so that he might become greater. But you got to remember that the Annunciation of John is the prelude to everything that's about to happen. It's like a, a wedding, right? The bridesmaids, they come in, and then you have the ring bearer and the flower girl. And as all of that's taking place, the the prelude is meant 
to build anticipation for the bridal march. Now, if you kind of say, ah, I'm not going to pay attention to any of these things. I just want the bride to come in. You kind of cheapen the coming of the bride. No, you got to slow down and take it all in and enjoy it. So that's what I'm going to ask us to do this morning is as we're anticipating the coming of Jesus, let's slow down a little bit and take in the prelude. Because you got to understand, with the Annunciation of John, we have seismic movements in the great plan of God as we are heading towards Jesus. I want you to see first this about God's great plan in John's Annunciation. His great plan disrupts dark times. And we come to understand that these are dark times in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. The story picks up and it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, of all the Gospels, I resonate most with Luke. I, I love Luke's style. He's a meticulous writer. He's a historian. He often takes little details like in the days of Herod and now grounds us in the, the greater secular world history that's taking place at the time. And, and this little tidbit tells us something about these times. You see, these are the times of Herod. Herod the Great. Herod the terror. Herod the, the guy that had no regard for human life. In fact, as the secular historians are writing of him of this time, they said that it would be better to be a pig in the house of Herod than it would be to be one of his sons. Because he's that cruel, he's that vindictive, he's that dark in the heart. You really come to understand that these are dark times when you realize that that, that detail that Matthew tells us about the, the slaughter of children in Bethlehem doesn't even make it as a footnote in the secular histories. Now you think that would be front-page material, wouldn't you? Not even mentioned. Why? Well, it's because Herod did so many other cruel things that that wasn't even topping the list in any way whatsoever to make it into the secular histories. And I think it's a good reminder. We need to remember that the things that make the front pages in the secular world seldom are the things that make the front pages in heaven. You know, the front pages in heaven often are events and occurrences that are taking place in unremarkable places, backwater places through unremarkable people. And in that way, heaven's front pages seldom correlate with what's happening in the world. And let me just say this, it should be a good reminder that as we're watching the news and reading the newspapers that all the things that seem so big and seismic movements in our lives and make us feel so anxious and fearful... Those things don't mean a hill of beans in heaven. Something else is more important. Well, 
these times are not just dark because Herod's ruling with an iron grip, but you have to understand as well that there has been radio silence from heaven for about 400 years. The last book of the Bible, the book just before the book of Matthew, is the book of Malachi, and this is the last prophetic utterance that we have in all the Scripture. So there's nothing right now. God is mute. No prophetic utterance, no theophanies or appearances of God, no angelic visitations, nothing. The people of God must have been wondering, where is God? What's God doing right now? When is God going to kind of carry out the promises that He made in the Bible where He said that Israel would be vindicated, where there would be a consolation of Israel, where the, the nations would come to Israel? Nothing for 400 years. But now, God's on the move. And He's on the move in the lives of two really, again, unremarkable people. You have a, a country priest and his wife, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Luke gives us all the details that we need to know about these two people. First, he tells us their names. Now, Zechariah is a common priestly name, and that name means that the Lord remembers. He's a remembering God. And Elizabeth's name is pointing to the promise-keeping nature of God, which the two names just seem to fly in the face of this cloud of disappointment that's been hanging over their lives. They're childless. In this day, people were considered childless because they had done something that God didn't like. They were disobedient people. It wasn't too... Uh, outside of the norm for someone like Elizabeth to be walking down the street and hearing women over off to the side talking about her, saying, what did she do? What, what's wrong with her? There's a stigma, a cloud that was hanging over them. And it also says that they were advanced in years. Now, in this time, that meant that someone had passed the age of 60. Now, before you shoot the messenger with that little piece of information, I want you to understand that that's not true today. 60 is the new 40, so you all are young and beautiful. But don't miss the point. They're past the due date time. They're not expecting a miracle to happen anymore. That ship has sailed in their mind. They know that a child for them is not a part of God's plan for them. Yet they're also special individuals. You see, they didn't allow their disappointment to turn into bitterness towards God. Verse 6 tells us that they were righteous and blameless. Now, that doesn't mean that they were morally perfect people who have never sinned. It just means that they didn't just talk the talk, they walked the walk. And I find this to be so refreshing. For one thing, it's refreshing because you don't have to allow your disappointments to turn into bitterness. You can have hard things happen in your life and you can still believe that God's in control and walk faithfully before Him. But it's also refreshing because they are living during a time where the religious system has become corrupt, stale, and hypocritical. You know what that means? 
that even when in churches, in religious places, there are a lot of phonies out there, there are also Zechariah's and Elizabeth's. Just downright godly people who love the Lord and who want to do things God's way and who are living for Him day in and day out. And that was true then and that's true now. There are these kinds of people. So we pick up the next part of the story, and in this part of the story, we learn that Zechariah has hit the lottery. The, the text picks up, it says, Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. In the whole multitude of the people, they were praying outside at the hour of incense. So this is the lottery. There's 24 divisions of priests. You can go back to 1 Chronicles 24 if you want to study a little bit more about the divisions of the priests. There's some 18,000 priests living in the nation of Israel, and each division of the priest would go to the temple two weeks per year and fulfill the duties of the temple. Now do the math in your brain real quick. 18,000 people, they have about two weeks of access, 24 divisions of priests. How often do you think you got to offer incense inside the temple? Well, some people never got the privilege, and if someone did get the privilege, it was only once in a lifetime. You have to understand that this is the pinnacle of Zechariah's career. He must have been so excited. I mean, think about the most important thing that happened in your career pathway, and this is probably far more significant, far more rare. So Zechariah is in the temple, and it's at the time that he's performing his job that it happened. Now, this is the second temple. This was first built by Zerubbabel, but then King Herod comes in and he just decks the place out. He renovates the space, makes it beautiful. Outside in the court, the priests and the faithful worshipers, they're holding that prayer meeting that Luke tells us about. Inside, Zechariah is standing in the holy place. Now, that's to be distinguished from the Holy of Holies. Remember, the Holy of Holies stands behind that beautiful, elaborate, embroidered curtain with the cherubim where the mercy seat is. And as he looks to his right, he sees the table of showbread. In front of him is the golden altar where he's going to offer the incense. Over to his left is the golden candlesticks. He gets everything prepared. He does everything just right. He knows just what he's supposed to do. He's just waiting for the signal to offer up the incense when it happens. Verse 11 and 12, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. Now, you have to understand all throughout the Bible, when a person encounters an angel, it is a fear-inducing event. Okay, you don't have any instance in the Bible where an angel appears and a person looks and says, oh, hey, it's you. So nice of you to join me here. No, no, when angels appear, people freak out. They lose their stuff. Now, this angel we're going to find out later on is Gabriel. He's only one of two angels mentioned by name in all of the Bible. You have Gabriel and you have Michael the archangel. And 
The only other time that Gabriel appears to someone in the Bible like this is 500 years prior to the prophet Daniel. Now, Daniel tells us what that encounter was like. He says in Daniel 8.17, I was frightened and fell on my face. And in fact, verse 18 seems to indicate that he passed out from fear. He says, when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep on my face. It doesn't sound like that old show we used to watch, Touched by an Angel, does it? In fact, if you did get touched by an angel, you might have a heart attack. Well, Gabriel tries to calm him down a little bit in verse 13. He says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now, what had he been praying for? I'd love to know that. Was he praying for a child? A son? Again, I think that ship sailed in his mind. No, I believe that he was praying in line with the righteous people of Israel. He was praying in line with the normal evening prayer offering in the nation of Israel. And that was for Israel to be vindicated for God to bring the Messiah and to bring about the next part of his plan. And so here what we have Gabriel saying to Zechariah is God has heard your prayer to deliver Israel and he's going to answer your prayer in a very special way. He's going to give you something that you haven't dared to pray for for years. You see, the name John means God is gracious. And as you look at the story, you see God being gracious in two ways. You know, God's plan, His great plan, affects us in the large-scale level. He's bringing about salvation to the nations. He has a plan that's all-encompassing that will touch into all peoples and places, tribes, tongues, and languages. But also, you see the grace of God here in that His plan also affects Zechariah in the personal level. He's going to give him a gift that he couldn't even think to ask for anymore. A son. We'll talk more about that later, but notice that Zechariah's coming son, John, is going to be the kind of son that parents pray for. He's going to be a special man with a special assignment. Verses 14 to 17 Gabriel explains, and you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the Father to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now notice the special qualities of John and the special ministry of John. First, Gabriel's essentially saying he's going to be a man of character. That's what it means to be great in the Lord, great before the Lord. And I want to tell you, of all the things that could be said of you, all the evaluations that could be made of you, to be great before the Lord is the most important evaluation of all. 
Now, you and I, we spend too much time worrying about being great before people. We do. We care about what they think. We care, do they, do they like the way I look? Do they think I'm smart? Do they think I'm competent? Do they like my personality? Now, I'm not telling you to be a jerk or socially awkward, but I am saying that the evaluation at the end of the day that matters about you is whether or not you are great before the Lord. And John was a man of character. Jesus said that there was no one greater than John the Baptist. And that means not Abraham. That means not David, not Daniel. A man of character. The story also tells us that he's a man of devotion. Gabriel gives this little indication. He says that he's not going to drink wine or strong drink, which alludes to the fact that John was going to take the Nazarite vow. This is a a rigorous vow that would be upon him for his whole life. Essentially, he would have no strong drink, he wouldn't cut his hair, and he would never touch the body of a dead person. Now, normally in the Scripture, the Nazarite vow was something that a person would engage in for a season, and then they would break the vow, and they would go back to the normal mode of living. The Apostle Paul did this in the book of Acts. He went through the Nazarite vow for a season. But there are a couple of special instances, are there, when a person would be brought into this vow even from the time of their birth. You have Samson who didn't keep the vow. You have Samuel. And now you have John the Baptist. And I think the Lord does this because these individuals had special purposes as He was moving along His great plans. It also tells us in the text The part of the reason he's going to be so devoted is because John the Baptist would be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. I love what one commentator says of this. He says that such a total invasion by the Spirit of God is unprecedented. So there's no one else in all of the Bible other than John the Baptist who has the Spirit of the Lord upon them to this degree for this duration his entire life and it's incredible harry and i were exchanging a text this morning and harry just made the observation john the baptist even from the womb was the first one to recognize that jesus was the messiah and what's even more incredible is the fact that something that is so unprecedented in the old testament meaning no one experienced what john experienced is the normal experience of the believer today Have you ever let that one sink in? The Spirit would come upon people and leave in the Old Testament. But here, in the New Testament era, Jesus said He indwells you for all of your life once you've trusted Jesus. John 14, 6 and 7, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot see. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Unprecedented in the Old Testament, your normal experience post-resurrection as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so what is our job? Well, our job is to apply Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit. And as we walk by the Spirit, we produce the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
So beyond the character and beyond the devotion, we also see his special assignment. Now, Gabriel alludes to the last two verses of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. The prophet Malachi said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now this special assignment has two awesome features to it. One of the features is this great revival that's going to come about because of John the Baptist's ministry. Really, when you look at revival in history and here in the Scriptures, revival often is God doing a great work of turning people from nominal Christianity, which is Christianity in name only, Christian because my parents were Christian, Christian because you know the greater culture at large seems to embrace this and accept this, but, but it's a husk of Christianity, right? It's not the heart of Christianity where people are truly serving God and being transformed by God. So John's going to come and he's going to preach fresh vitality into this nation of Israel that's become legalistic and religiously self-absorbed and people are going to turn in droves back to God and he's going to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. Another incredible feature of this ministry is an implication in Malachi's prophecy foretold that Elijah would come before God himself comes. The same thing is said in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Believer, this is why your Christology matters. Now, Christology simply means the study of Jesus, the study of Christ, the doctrine that we believe about Christ, what we believe to be true of Him. And here in the Scriptures, we come to realize that the coming of Jesus is the coming of God Himself. He is fully God and fully man. He is deity joined fully with dust. And what we come to find out about Jesus because of who He is, because of His nature, is He's the only one who could bring God's salvation. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except from Me. Because no one could bring about the salvation of God but God who became man. In Timothy, Paul said, there's one mediator between God and man. Jesus. You can't believe in another way. You can't believe that you're the way. He's the only way. As we look at the next part of the story, Zachariah is stunned at what he's just heard. I mean, the magnitude of it just seems too good to be true. He's struck with a wave of doubt. He questions Gabriel in verse 18. He says, how, how shall I know this is true? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Basically, Gabriel, you're going to have to do a little more here for me, buddy. I mean, come on. I don't know anything about biology yet. It hasn't, you know, it's not even a word that's been mentioned, but I know how biology works. There's no way we're having a child. You see, sometimes 
even good people have doubts about God's promises. It's because they've been carrying disappointments for so long. That's what disappointments do sometimes in our heart, you know, as we carry bitter or pain, as we carry disappointments, they wear us down. The pain and the brokenness become like familiar friends. We start to say that's just the way things are. I mean, God's nice and all, but, but can He really solve this particular problem? In fact, I want to suggest that we begin to make an unspoken truce with the curse of sin. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that curse, by definition, means not normal. It's not how things were supposed to be. In fact, curse meant that there was an unraveling of the normal order of things that God had created in the beginning. Here's the thing. I want you to really, really take this one in. Babies are not supposed to die. Relationships are not supposed to be fractured and broken between fathers and sons, mothers and daughters. Couples are not supposed to experience infertility. The genetic code is not supposed to break down and then turn cells into cancerous cells and then ravage a body until the body dies. Death is not supposed to be a feature of life. But we have created this unspoken truce with the curse where we say that's reality, that's what's normal. But that's not what the Bible says. And Zechariah knew this. Like I said, even good people have lot, can lose perspective. And I know as I talk to a room with this many people in here that it's highly likely that someone here has lost perspective. You've been beaten down, broken. You've succumbed and said this is just the way things are. So the question I have for you this morning is how are you going to gain perspective again? Sometimes we lose perspective because we start treating God like a McDonald's drive-thru. He's not a McGod. We come to him, God, you know, this is what I want right now, and I want it right now. Make sure you're snappy with it. You know, 50 seconds or less, get through the drive through so I can get about my day. Why am I waiting over here for five minutes for my food to come out right now, God? I don't like this one bit. But the problem is, is God is not a Mick God. So sometimes we're praying for things, we're expecting things, and it's not going to come out right at the time we want it, and sometimes we're going to get a totally different order than what we asked for. And we lose patience and maybe even get angry. But he's not a mick God. No, he's a remembering God. He's a promise-keeping God. He's working out his great plans. And, and sometimes those plans involve special requests, like in this story where Zechariah has promised a son, something that he dared not even to pray for for so long. That's sometimes. But always, when God's working, he's working towards resolving what your greatest need is. You see, even more than success at work or 
health for someone you love or financial stability or good experiences or your own personal longevity and health, even more than your kids doing well, your biggest need has to do with your broken relationship with God. The Bible says that we're all sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that sinfulness, our relationship with God is broken, and we're also all under God's just and righteous judgment. Now, I can scoff at that. I can say, oh, that's not my biggest problem in life. God doesn't know what I need. I know what I need. But I'll tell you, that's just not reality. Because if God created us, if God knows us from the inside out, if He knows me better than I know me, then He knows what my biggest problem is. And, and if I am heading on a trajectory where I'm going to be eternally separated from Him, i got to tell you, there's nothing bigger in the world of your problems than that problem. And as you look at the Scriptures God is laser-like focused on solving that problem. And that's what these miraculous births are all about. Well, Gabriel responds decisively to Zechariah's doubtful question. In verse 19, he says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. You know, basically he's saying, What more do you want, Zechariah? I mean, I stand in the throne room of God. I hear direct reports from God and I bring them to you. It's like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staffs coming to a lowly corporal and saying, this is what the president just said. You want something else? Okay, well, if you want another sign, I'll give you another sign. In verse 20, he gets the other sign. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Now this is discipline for unbelief. But understand this. When God disciplines unbelief, He is not doing it to break a person down or beat a broken person down more. No, he brings about his discipline in order to build you back up again. Here is Zechariah struggling with faith. He's going to be quiet for a while, and God's going to rebuild his faith. And while all this is happening, the longest prayer meeting in recorded history is happening outside of the temple. It's turned into that dreaded all-day prayer where you wonder when is you know, Susie and so-and-so going to stop praying. They prayed for 10 minutes. You start looking to the left and right. You don't have anything else to say. Well, they're praying and they're looking and they're wondering, where's Zachariah so we can stop praying? In verse 21 and 23, and the people were waiting and they're wondering at the delay. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. The irony here is just incredible. Zechariah and the nation think God's mute. (laughs) He hasn't said anything for 400 years. Well, God says, actually, Zechariah, you're going to be mute because I've been working I've been moving, I've been doing things all along, and I told you that my promises were coming, and here they are. And let me just say this, church, when God moves, He moves. 
And he does it in an incredibly immediate fashion. Verses 24 and 25, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So incredible. She's so overwhelmed, so surprised by the work of God that she shuts herself up in her house for five months. Now, it's not because she's ashamed of what God's doing right now. It's just because she's like, how is this happening? And I didn't even dare to pray for this anymore. And then God just does it. And here's the thing we learn. God didn't have to do this. No, all of this just, again, points to the character of God, that He's a gracious God, that He's a generous God, that He's a good God. You know, when, when God's bringing about His great plans, He's walking forward with the plan. He has like all these little taste sampling spoons with ice cream on them, and He's just handing them out to people along the way. I, I love taste samples, by the way. Don't you just love walking into an ice cream parlor and you see all the flavors in front of you and you're like, that one sounds a little weird, but I'll give it a try. Eh, no, that was weird. Let me try that one with a lot of fudge and brownie. Yep, that's just what I want. Now, when you get the sample, that's not good enough, right? I mean, one and done. No, I want the fullness. Because once I find the brownie goodness of awesome, I want two scoops of that in a waffle cone. <laughs> it's similar to the engaged couple, right? As they're preparing for the wedding, they go around and they sample. See what the food's going to taste like at our feast. The wedding cake. Now, they're not going to be content with the sample, right? It's all building up. The anticipation is coming. There's, there's a great day where we're going to have a feast and we're going to have a wedding cake and, and we're going to get to enjoy all of this with our closest loved ones and relatives. You see, friends, the miracles in the Bible are taste samples of the fullness of heaven. I mean, think of the, the, the joy produced by this unexpected pregnancy. It is good. We read this story. It warms our hearts. That was a great taste sample. But just imagine how much better it's going to be in heaven where in Revelation 22, the Bible tells us that He has removed everything that's accursed. In Revelation 21, the Bible says God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Church, that's the wedding cake. That's what we're hoping for, praying for, longing for, and that's why God's doing all of what He is doing right now. So don't get stuck on the sample spoons. Long for the cake. Well, friend, I'll tell you this morning, the way you get to experience the fullness is by having a personal relationship with God's Son, Jesus. I mean, I'll, 
I'll tell you, there's nothing more in this world that I want for you. I implore you. All of the things that God's doing in this story, all of the things that God has done in the Bible, it all boils down to the fact that God sent His Son into the world for you and for me. His Son died on the cross for you. He died a death that you deserve. Your sin, the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. You deserve that death. The Bible also said He did something you couldn't do. He lived a perfectly righteous life. The sinless one became sin for us. And it was costly. It cost Jesus a great deal. But the Bible also says He did it gladly for you. Because He wants you to taste the fullness. He wants you to get into that right relationship with God so that you can become the you that you were always meant to be. It also says that He rose again from the dead. Now what does that tell us about Jesus? It tells us that He is the Lord of life. He's the Lord who has conquered death, who has defeated sin. And if Jesus can raise Himself from the dead, then surely He can raise you and I from the dead. Now, the way to embrace the fullness, get to the fullness, of course, is to embrace Jesus by faith. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me just ask us to do something that we don't do very often today. And that's to give God our attention. So if you would, for just a moment, create some space. Do this by just simply bowing your head, closing your eyes. Don't look at me. Don't look at the person to your right or left. But give God your focused attention right now. Even start talking to him a little bit. God, what do you have for me right now? Now, in just a second, I'm going to lead those of you, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, if you've never trusted him, through just a simple prayer so that you can start that life right now with him. So give him your attention and pray with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you for coming. I thank you for dying on the cross for my sins and for raising again to new life. Jesus, I understand that my sin is my biggest problem and today I turn away from that and I turn to you. In the best way I know how, I turn my life over to your care and control. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'll tell you, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, the most important next step, in my opinion, in the Bible's opinion, is to get integrated into a body of believers, a local church. Uh, you can't grow in the life of faith without the people of God. God has made it to, to be a, a requisite to growing with Him. And, and I tell you, this is a great church to grow in. So if you want to learn how to grow more in your faith, you can reach out to me anytime. You can email me. It's rob at osterville.baptist.org. I'd love to have a conversation with you about that. Grab me or one of the elders, and we'll talk through that more. But here's, here's my blessing over you for the week. May you experience the love of God this week. May you grow to look more like Jesus this week, and may you be filled with the Spirit this week. God bless you.